0: The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O oh Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, you are mighty. You are in charge of the entire cosmos. And as we come to listen to your word today, may we see ourselves rightly May we experience the grace of the Father through the work of the Son and through the application of the Holy Spirit. May you be glorified, we pray, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Okay, Let me try that again. Good morning. I'm really glad you're here. Um, when I left church last Sunday, I was not anticipating preaching this morning. And uh, as the events of the week and text messages and all that have kind of uh, been proliferating this week, um, I, I wondered if I might be the only one here this morning. So I'm really, uh, really glad to see you. And if you're online, thanks for joining us online. Are we, um, are we working on that? Are, I, okay. I'm going to keep talking, and if something needs to change, let me know. Uh, <laughs> all right. So Pacifica, California is a uh, beach community. It's a town of about 40,000 people just south of San Francisco on the, uh, the coast of Northern California. And it's a quiet little beach community with cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Apparently, it is home to the world's most beautiful Taco Bell, <laughs> if there can possibly be such a thing. And in 1991, a woman named Jane Tolini, a single mother, moved into a modest three-bedroom house, overlooking the bluff with spectacular views of the ocean in Pacifica. And for seven glorious years, everything was wonderful. Uh, She would go to sleep, her bedroom was sort of in the back of the house uh, with a glass door that led out to a patio and about 50 yards beyond that was the cliff um, and then the Pacific Ocean and one evening she went to bed in the fall of 1998 and woke up one morning, the next morning, sat up in her bed, looked at her sliding glass door and realized that her backyard had disappeared. Uh, there had been no earthquake, no storm in the night. It was just gone. Um, when she woke up her backyard that had been there solidly beneath her feet the night before, it was just gone. And her room, um, she realized the, 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 the waves were no longer cla- um, crashing against cliffs like 40 or 50 feet further away, but her bedroom was now hanging off the edge of a cliff about 70 feet above the Pacific Ocean. And she realized very quickly that the solid ground that hid beneath her feet the night before had disappeared, had eroded underneath her as she slept. <laughs> and I tell you that story because I think it maybe captures something of what life has felt like for many of us in the last several years. One moment, life feels certain and stable, and the next moment, seemingly without warning, it's as if the ground beneath our feet has simply vanished. And the precariousness of life becomes an existential question for us. And really, the question that I want to wrestle with this morning as we look at Psalm 93 is this, where do you turn when the world around you feels unstable? To whom or to what do you look? when the world underneath you feels like it is slipping away. For much of the last, let's um, say 50-ish years, not exclusively, but but for many of us living in the West, it has felt like a time of unprecedented stability. Unprecedented stability where things like comfort and stability are a given, and yet all of that feels like it is changing, doesn't it? In 1992, Francis Fukuyama published a book titled The End of History and the Last Man in which he argued that Western society is approaching the apex of human history. The end of history doesn't mean like we're reaching the apocalypse and everything's going to explode. But, but rather, um, Francis Fukuyama's theory was that history was a struggle between human cultures as um, human cultures struggle against one another, they evolve, and we have now finally, post fall of the Berlin Wall, post the fall of the USSR, have defeated evil, all real enemies have been overcome, and so in The End of History and the Last Man, Fukuyama argues that Western liberal democracy is the height of human civilization, and so this, end, this, this kind of ongoing clash of cultures has reached its climax, and there is no further direction for human civilizations to develop into. And so therefore, he said that we've arrived at the end of history. It's almost been inevitable that history would get to this place where conflict would cease and life would be stable and everything would be wonderful. Wonderful. He published that in 1992 and for the first couple decades, I mean, it's been a very influential book and for the next couple decades, it seemed like that thesis was mostly being borne out and of course, all of that has been called into question over the last couple of years. Over the last couple of years, we have seen um, just an incredible amount of change and instability in in our world, haven't we? Uh, A virus that we can't see that we don't know exactly where it came from, we don't know what the consequences of it will be, has been fairly successful in holding us hostage for a, a, a big period of the last couple of years. A war with potentially devastating consequences has reopened the question of whether evil in the world has truly been vanquished. Political and cultural polarization seem to be tearing apart previously peaceful relationships, friendships, even families, and of course, there are so many other just deeply unsettling issues that we could mention. But one of the things I think that has come with um, all the change we've experienced culturally over the last couple of years is that we have lost the sense of predictability. I mean, I already said uh, seven days ago, It was not my plan to be talking to you about any of this this morning, um, and we know that um, COVID diagnoses, diagnoses, and sickness in our church have led to uh, you know we we are, we canceled our Sunday school our children's ministry this morning. Um, the change of plans, you know, on on the on the um, on the personal level, it is much harder for us to say with certainty. Like, yes, I'm planning to do this and I intend to follow through on those plans. Uh, We've seen that at a global level. I mean, the Olympics being postponed a year. The Olympics, (laughs) right? That never happens, right? The Olympics had to be put off by a year. And so... What do we do? What does it mean when we look to the future, when we can no longer look to the future with a sense of predictability? How do we get our feet back on solid soil? Where do we look to when the world around us is filled with chaos? And it's within those questions in mind that I wanna turn our attention to Psalm 93 this morning. And I wanna invite you to consider how Psalm 93 might recalibrate your posture towards life in an unstable world. Because if I'm honest, If you are a regular participant at the table or if you've been involved in a Christian church for any period of time, I really doubt I'm going to say anything that will come as a a sort of like something novel to you this morning. But rather, I think what Psalm 93 is doing is it, it is inviting us to recalibrate our hearts because when life feels uncertain, it is tempting to panic and to begin to spiral in our anxiety and Psalm 93 comes to recalibrate our hearts by reminding us that we can live with confidence in the midst of the chaos of our world because God is our King. And so, the first thing that I want you to see in this passage is that our world is stable because God is King. Our world is stable because God is King. The clear theme of Psalm 93 is the strength of God, that God's strength is mightier than the chaos of our world. Listen again. Psalm one says, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. The emphasis here is on God's strength, demonstrated through his action in creating the physical world. And the psalm is not um, speaking to the mechanics of how or when God created the world, rather it's asserting that our physical world is a stable and secure place because God is the one who created it. Verse 2 emphasizes that God is ancient, which points to his wisdom and his character. And the psalm is telling us that we live, that the world that we live in, and I know I kind of started this whole thing off by talking about the chaos of the world we live in, the chaos of the cultural moment that we, were li- that we are living in, but the psalmist is saying that the physical world is stable because it reflects the character of its creator. Our world is stable and trustworthy because God is stable and trustworthy. The implication here for us is that the stability of our world cannot be taken for granted. Rather, it is derivative. The stability of our world is derivative. It depends on the stability of the God who establishes his rule in creation. In fact, even the assumption that our world ought to be stable and that it is unsettling to us when it doesn't feel that way, that the seasons, you know, should move from one to the next, that the natural world can be observed and tested and expected to respond in repeatable ways. That assumption is a reflection of the character of the God who is the same yesterday and today and forever, that he has created our world to reflect the stability of his character. Okay, so that's what the psalm is saying. It's declaring that the world is stable because God is stable and he created the world. Now, I know that saying what I've just said about God's work in the world, it, it, it tends to create in us this response, this kind of like apologetic impulse that says, now how are you going to defend that? Um, How are you going to discuss the the nature of laws of physics and how they're related to God's providence? How are you going to articulate uh, or respond to a debate between creation and evolution? And all of these apologetic type questions emerge. And a lot of that, I think, is due to the cultural moment that we live in, and that's fine, and there's a place for that. But the emphasis of the psalm is not on that. The psalm makes no attempt to defend its claims rather it is telling us that the stability of the world is not inevitable but rather it's a reflection of who our king is and that provokes a response from us and so when life feels uncertain we should interrogate our assumption that life ought to be more stable we should interrogate the assumption that life ought to feel different than it was. And when we interrogate those assumptions, it leads us to the God who, is established, who has established our world on its foundation and who it says is robed in majesty, and we should respond by standing in awe of him. We should respond with worship. We cannot take as a given, we cannot take it as something that is owed to us that our world is stable. And when we see that, our response is gratitude. Uh, Andrew Peterson is a uh, Christian musician based out of Nashville, and he's, he has this song that um, my family knows I've been sort of obsessed with um, for the past couple of weeks. And I wanted to read um, the, the, the lyrics of the first verse um, to you here, because it's, it's getting at exactly this thing. He starts off saying, can't you feel it in your bones that something isn't right here, something you've always known, but you don't know why? There's this sense deep within us that something in our world is not right. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. But when you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Don't you feel that it is not inevitable that the beauty of the sunrise is owed to us every 24 hours. Our world is stable because God, who is king, rules over it, and Psalm 93 is asking if you have ever had that reality pierce you in such a way that it takes your breath away. That we live in a world that is stable and good, even when it's not always good. And it's breathtaking. I um, recently as it started to warm up and my kids wanna go ride bikes, I'm like, well, I need to get a mountain bike now that I live in Colorado so I can ride with my kids, and so I bought a mountain bike off of Facebook Marketplace, and I told Todd Ansa that I had bought a mountain bike, and I have no interest in, like, becoming a mountain bike person. <laughs> I don't need another expensive hobby, you know, um, I just wanna ride with my kids, but I told Todd, and Todd's like, I have to take you on this ride with me. And so recently, Todd and I woke up way too early in the morning, and we went to this trailhead at sunrise, and we rode like 14 miles around this loop, and um, I grew up in Southern California where if you're riding a mountain bike, you're either going straight uphill or straight downhill, and it was just this gentle rolling trail, and we're surrounded by greenery and the sun is rising in the east and the flat irons are beautiful on the horizon in the west. And it's just breathtaking. And I keep coming around a corner going, God, I can't believe I get to do this. This is, thank you. This is stunning. And it is not inevitable. It is not inevitable that our world is stable and it is an incredible place, it is an incredible place to live because God, who is stable and created our world, is our king and who rules over creation. So that's the first thing that this psalm teaches us. But the second thing that the psalm brings before us is this reality that though God is king, our world is chaotic. Though God is king, our world is chaotic. And Psalm 93 doesn't ignore the reality that life in this world is tumultuous. That though we expect life to be stable, though we expect that life ought to be predictable, though we expect to get along with people who are different from us, though we expect life to generally progress and get better as it goes along, both individually and culturally, often those things don't happen at all. Verse three says, the floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice, The floods lift up their roaring. It's almost like I can picture the the author of this psalm sitting and writing this psalm out. And and he's saying, he's writing, God is strong and the earth is stable under our feet. And then there's this voice that says, but what about the water? (laughs) The earth is stable, but what about the water? Ooh, counterpoint, right? Like, (laughs) And to understand the full effect here, we have to understand that in the ancient Hebrew imagination, water represents chaos. The ancient Israelites were not seafaring people. They were terrified of the chaos of the water. That's why the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, when he, when he flees from the presence of God, he goes to the sea and he gets on a boat because he knows that, you know, the God of Israel is confined to the land, I guess. But that's the way they thought. About, about the sea, it was a place of chaos. And so the psalm starts by saying that the earth is stable because God created and upholds it, but then doubt creeps, uh, then the doubt creeps in and it says, yeah, but what about when it is not stable? What about the waters? What about when the earth is not stable under our feet? The floods have lifted up their voice like the thunder, they thunder like the chaos of life in a fallen and broken world and overwhelm the calmness the predictability that we long for. But then the psalm responds by saying God is mightier. God is mightier even than the chaos, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Yes, chaos exists, but God reigns even over the complexities of our lives, and the existence of the chaos in our world does not diminish the fact that God is king, that he is sovereign, that he rules, that he is good. And um, I want to attempt to sort of put some flesh on what I just said there, that God is sovereign over even the complexities of our lives. I want to attempt to illustrate that reality by referencing an incredibly difficult and contentious issue. And I feel like I'm going out on a limb doing this. Um, I'm gonna try to do this with care and sensitivity. So you know that a couple of weeks ago, a leaked Supreme Court document um, indicated that the court is likely to overturn Roe v. Wade. And that that leaked document has sort of reinvigorated culture war debates that have been simmering for generations in this country. I'm being intentionally vague. I know we have kids here. I'm not going to, I'm assuming you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) On Friday, two days ago, the New York Times published an essay by Dr. Matthew Luftus entitled When an Abortion is Pro-Life, in which He describes his work as a medical missionary doctor, as someone who is firmly in the pro-life camp, working in South Sudan on the edge of a war zone, where a um, woman arrived, a pregnant woman arrived one day at his clinic having lost half of the volume of her blood over the previous two weeks, and he elected to perform that procedure in order to save life and he writes this he writes about this in the New York Times and he wrote this essay not to justify his decision or really even to advance a pro-life argument but really to say again I emphasize in the New York Times that the mighty acts of God in creation and redemption are the only thing sufficient to enable us to navigate the complexities of life in a chaotic and broken world And he finished with these words. He says, as I ponder this, I think about the resurrection. It is the only way any of this makes sense to me. Christ's resurrected body still bore the scars of crucifixion, such that Thomas knew he was the Lord by touching and seeing. And I trust that that child I will meet one day in heaven will unmistakably bear some marks by which I will recognize him. Still, the hope of the resurrection is that I will be able to clutch his hand and dance with that child to the praise of Christ. And it is in that hope that my colleagues and I keep working. Fleming Rutledge tweeted last night, that is the most profound display of the gospel I have ever seen in the New York Times. That's amazing, and the reason that I read that to you this morning is not to try to I don't know pull on your heartstrings, but to simply say that when the Bible tells us that belief in God that the belief that God is mightier than his creation and that this belief that God is mightier than our creation is the ultimate solution to our doubt and despair and that it is the key to living with confidence in the midst of a chaotic world the Bible is not inviting us into that belief naively we look at the chaos of our world that we know in our bones should be better than it is, and we ask the question, why? Why is life the way it is? And as far as I can tell, the Bible never attempts directly to answer that question. The Bible never uh, seeks to make sense out of the senselessness of our world, but it does tell us two things. I mean, we see in this passage It's not that God can't do anything. God is mightier than the chaos of our world. So it can't be that God cannot do anything. And secondly, it is not that he doesn't care. See, the great truth of Psalm 93 is that God is the king, that he rules, and that he reigns over our world. And the question that we have to ask then is, when did God become king? And how did that take place? And the truth is that, in one sense, God has never not been king. As verse 1 tells us, He is enthroned in creation from all eternity. God's glory and majesty and rule are clear through His work in creation, and yet there's more. When chaos enters into our world because the human race rebelled against our Creator, God doesn't respond in anger and judgment like a temperamental human king might. But rather, he leaves his throne and he enters into his creation as a human. And in Jesus, he takes on flesh and he subjects himself to the chaos of our lives. The one who can command armies with a word, the one who the Bible tells us spoke the world, the creation into existence gives himself over to the uncertainty and the chaos of life in this world. And eventually, as Jesus is hung on the cross, he cries out to God asking that question that we ask, why, God, why? God, why have you abandoned me? And he entrusts himself to God in death. And the beautiful irony of the cross is this, that the Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, Mark, Luke, and John tell us, the beautiful irony is that it is as Jesus is lifted up on the cross that he is enthroned as king. That's how he becomes king. He has always been king through creation, and yet, as he is lifted up on the cross, Jesus is enthroned in the work of redemption as well. And if we look forward to the end of the story, Revelation 11 verse 15 says that there is a day coming in the future when all of us will cry out, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The king enters into the chaos of our world in order to buy us back from death and lead us into life. And that's the truth about his kingship and our future that allows us to live with confidence in the midst of a chaotic world, knowing that the future is secure because Christ is king through creation, Christ is king through redemption, is what enables us to live in the present, even though it is chaotic and uncertain. And so the psalm finishes finally in verse five, inviting our response, inviting our response to the king the God who is king in our creation and king in our redemption by saying, God, we can trust you and we will listen to your voice and we will live lives of response to you because you are our God and you are our king. And this is the message of Psalm 93. So let me see if there are any questions for a Q&A. and a There aren't any. If you have questions later, feel free to t- text those in, and I can respond to those later in the week. Let me pray for us as we uh, come to the Lord's table this morning. Jesus, we thank you and praise you for this reminder of your work in our world, in our lives. Jesus, we need to be reminded regularly that you are king and that we are not. And that so often the chaos um, externally in our world and the chaos in our hearts threatens to overwhelm us when we believe that we are the ones at the center of the universe. And so Jesus, this morning we simply pause to remember that you are our king, that you are our God, You set the world upon its foundation. You put the stars in the sky. And when we rebelled against you, you entered into our lives to buy us back. Jesus, would you, who even as you rule now in heaven, would you rule in our lives? Take this meal and use it to strengthen our faith this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.